when is it moral to go to war? We ask this question today. We asked it in the Vietnam era. We ask it in relation to nuclear weapons. Why haven't we asked it about the Civil War? How do we remember that war differently? That's a question we'll ask today's guest, David Byte, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, this is Jeff and Rochelle from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. What is the best rule of thumb when tipping on a cruise? While it is completely up to you, most experts suggest 10 to $12 per day per person. This is usually settled on the last night of your cruise and may be distributed among your stateroom attendant, your waiter, the maitre d' and their assistants. If you want to save yourself the hassle of budgeting for this additional expense, consider prepaying your gratuity when you book your cruise or sometime before you set sail. If you want to add the gratuity later, that is your option. There are a few cruise lines that suggest a tipping optional policy. It is felt that service personnel are paid considerably better than on other cruise lines, and the need to tip is not required. These will usually be found on higher-end luxury-style cruise lines. Some cruise lines will impose a service charge of $10 per person per day. This can be adjusted up or down at the end of the cruise as you see fit. Keep in mind, though, that gratuity are a large part of the income for the service industry. If there is anybody on the ship that you feel has done an exceptional job to make your cruise vacation more enjoyable, let that person know how you feel, both by extending a worthy gratuity and thanking that person personally. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune in to Travel Hub Radio, live Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and TravelHubRadio.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich, today with David Blight, professor at Yale University and author of Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the questions that have not been asked about the Civil War, uh, specifically uh, the, the morality, perhaps, of the questions both of going to war and how the war was conducted. Uh, this seems to be changing in the literature. More people are asking these questions. But what is what is it about the Civil War that makes us remember it differently? The, that, that shapes our memory of the war. Why why don't we apply the same kind of historical scrutiny as we do to uh, uh, Vietnam or or the First World War and its uh, trench warfare and so on? Uh, David, what do you think yeah. about this? Why why don't we traditionally? Well, in part, it, it probably has to do with the larger popular culture in which we've romanticized the Civil War, we've sentimentalized it. Um, our, our own great epic, you know, struggle on our own soil uh, for fundamental purposes on both sides, surely. Um, but our culture has, um, has rendered that experience, has rendered the horror of that experience uh, somewhat sanitized, I think, um, over time. 
And uh, we've also rendered it an essentially um, reconciled conflict. Um, uh, reconciliations are good things, but sometimes they do come at great cost, which is what I was arguing in that book on memory. Well, let's talk about that. You you start with that marvelous set piece description of the the uh, Gettysburg reunion, the 50th reunion. Yeah. And most of us have seen some of those uh, old films of the, the the ancient veterans, the flags fluttering in the wind, the old men embracing. Uh, yeah, that footage is stunning. That footage is unforgettable, and one can see why Ken Burns used it at the end of his uh, important PBS series. But uh, Ken also um, <clears throat> did some um, some interesting editing with that. I mean, if, if if your listeners go back and watch the final episode of that series, they will note that the implication is that the white and black veterans shaking hands in those very final scenes he uses, the implication there is that that's the 50th anniversary reunion in 1913 at Gettysburg, and, and it's not. That footage is from 1938, uh, 25 years later. There were no black veterans at the 1913 reunion. Uh, it was um, a Jim Crow reunion. Uh, the only black men at that reunion were laborers and workers who worked the mess tents, handed out blankets, and built and cleaned the latrines. Um, missing from that uh, grand demonstration of reunion and reconciliation was much of the meaning of what the war had been about. And uh, indeed, at the reunion, in speech after speech after speech, uh, particularly by state governors and some surviving important officers, uh, the theme is simply uh, mutual glory and mutual valor and not uh, anything uh, to to say about causes and consequences. And I think in many ways it was the version of the war, it was the conception of the memory of the war that the larger culture at that time most wanted. And to some extent it still is. Um, we still like to see, I think as a broad culture, I'm using the pronoun we in a, in a less than careful way, but I think as a broad culture, those of us who have such enthusiasm about the Civil War, we like to see it as something where there was glory enough to go around, both sides fought with great devotion for what they believed in, and somehow out of it, the whole nation just got better. Well, there's some truth to that. But, of course, there's an underside of that story. The reunion that came out of the Civil War of North and South had enormous costs uh, for blacks and whites and for the cause of racial justice. So when I encountered that uh, story of the Gettysburg reunion in 1913, uh, which I confess I first saw or first knew about from Burns's film series, and then I went to do research on it, um, I realized that, you know, this is something that had to be studied uh, more closely than we ever had. Um, I'd already been planning to do some kind of book on Civil War memory, but I had no clue at that early time around 1990 as to exactly how I would do it. 
But that Gettysburg reunion is a phenomenal event. They brought over 50,000 veterans from both sides from every corner of the country and paid every veteran's way to Gettysburg. And, and they had a kind of a festival of reunion and harmony. Um, but there were some very great issues that uh, had not yet been reconciled. Was there resistance to that among any of the veterans, particularly the northern veterans? Uh, it was a little bit, but not, by then, not much. Uh, there was some resistance among northern veterans to the early Blue-Gray reunions back in the 1880s when they first started to try to have them, uh, and even in the 90s to some extent. But by the 1890s, these big Blue-Gray reunions became huge events in cities all over the country, including the South, would, would compete uh, to host them. And a lot of southern cities started hosting the big annual Blue-Gray reunions by the 1890s. Uh, Atlanta hosted a big one in 1900. Uh, Louisville hosted a big one in the 1890s, uh, and, and as did other southern cities. Um, and But eventually, th these were celebrations of soldiers' valor. They were celebrations of the kind of mutuality of sacrifice among soldiers. And that's something that, you know, clearly we can understand. Uh, soldiers were men, veterans were men set apart. Uh, we've seen this with all wars. There's an experience from going to war that men share on both sides of a conflict. Uh, much of the conflict that remained, though, among soldiers was played out over things like the return of flags, of battle flags. There was a lot of resistance to that among Union veterans right up uh, into and through uh, the Spanish-American War. Uh, a lot of uh, Union veterans never wanted to return those battle flags. I mean, there was something about those flags that they just felt like, you know, they owned them. And, and most of them, of course, were deposited at state capitals, uh, and some never were returned, although quite a few were. I recall there was one northern governor re responded to a request, uh, come and get them. Yeah. And, uh, we'll fight you again for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 there probably was even a little more uh, resistance among some Union veterans to this blue-gray reconciliation than we may ne than we may ever fully know about, uh, because it was the reunion story that got all the press. It was the reconciliation narrative that got so much play, and and even in soldiers or veterans' war sketches, their these, these veterans' papers, they would deliver to each other endlessly at their veterans' uh, meetings, their post meetings, GAR meetings, and so on. Those uh, eventually had to kind of toe a line of telling their stories of adventure and telling their their stories of uh, of great campaigning uh, without the politics, without the partisanship, and so on. Um, but as I did in in my research, if if you go and read enough of those war sketches, um, these volume after volume that were published of the, what were called war papers. Mm -hmm. You'll find that every now and then, maybe one out of every 25 or so, uh, one of these guys will actually uh, become a little partisan, and he'll rem he'll he'll actually express some uh, sentiment about what they were fighting for. Uh, they'll actually uh, celebrate that they 
fought to save the Union or even fought to free the slaves or at least to destroy slavery, you know, from the American landscape. But it's fairly rare. There's a kind of a formula to those uh, war sketches uh, that veterans would write and then read to each other uh, that, that shows they, too, were reaching for a kind of reconciliationist memory. The real resistance to the reconciliationist memory, of course, came largely from African Americans. Uh, and in my book, as you know from reading it, I went to some black newspapers to see their reactions to that uh, 1913 Gettysburg reunion and others like it. And their reaction was uh, very, very different. Um, they wondered uh, if if this was uh, a reunion about the same war, uh, you know, that they had experienced or that they had remembered. And you need to remember that in 1913, or for the whole period of 1911 to 1915, the 50th anniversary of the Civil War comes right on the heels of the completion of the establishment of the legal Jim Crow system all across the South. That array of Jim Crow laws that had begun in the early 1890s has just about run its course uh, 20 years later and has rewritten the statute books of the southern states. Uh, it also comes right on, on the backdrop, of course, of Woodrow Wilson's election to the presidency and the uh, divided election of 1912, and he's the first southern-born president since the Civil War, and he is the president who that very spring in 1913, right after he was inaugurated, had begun to resegregate uh, two or three departments and agencies of the federal government. So it's a very interesting historical moment when you look more broadly than than just that extraordinary tent city that was constructed out there on the Gettysburg battlefield. And these these events, as, as you show in your book, are not uh, are not just coincidences. These are all all connected. The, the point you make well, they're very right well planned. Yeah. The idea that the soldiers could could see you know, valor in one another, could reconcile, it certainly makes sense. You can even find uh, now, perhaps more than uh, one could find twenty years ago. Uh, even in wars as bitter as Vietnam, an acknowledgement that the enemy uh, on the battlefield fought bravely, whatever one might think of their politics. Sure. That happens cause. with almost every war. But you don't see... Uh, well, every time I drive up I-95 to Washington, I go by the, the sign on the highway for Fort A.P. Hill, yeah. and I say to myself, Fort Irwin Rommel. Yeah. I don't have one of those. <laughs> The, the, the yeah, and uh, we didn't invite the Germans to the 50th and 60th anniversaries of D-Day either. No, no, that that was exactly. Now, so there's a difference here between just acknowledging the bravery of someone, you know, and Rommel is, is, is relatively apolitical for a German general, right. uh, yet we don't acknowledge him the way we do acknowledge uh, yeah. Hill or Davis or, or, or Lee. Well, in American memory of the Civil War, I mean, to put it... Um, Quite straightforwardly, we took the ideology out of it. We took the meaning out of it. We took the sense of cause and consequence out of it. Uh, American culture, uh, by the 1880s, 90s, turn of the 20th century, uh, was was constructing a narrative of the Civil War that 
almost wrote emancipation right out of the story. We were we made it into a struggle among white men for um, for great causes on both sides. Uh, anyone who fought heroically and was devoted to their cause was 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 deemed uh, um, you know a glorious veteran and and understandably so on an individual basis, but. But but America had a terrible racial situation by the 1880s and 1890s. It was inventing a kind of racial apartheid system in this country. And the emancipationist memory of the Civil War, a war that ultimately destroyed slavery, uh, led to the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, to a genuine rebirth and reinvention of the U.S. Constitution, to a much broadened conception of of citizen equality and so on, um, that wasn't the the war that the mainstream culture any longer uh, wanted to remember. And and in in that kind of cultural context, A. P. Hill, Stonewall Jackson, and especially Robert E. Lee, eventually became national heroes, not just Southern heroes. In fact. The great achievement of the lost cause as a culture uh, was that eventually it wasn't about loss at all. The lost cause eventually became a kind of racial ideology that was essentially a victory narrative. And the victory narrative being told out of lost cause culture by the turn of the 20th century was the victory over Reconstruction, the Southern victory over Reconstruction. And that was uh, pitched or deemed uh, as a kind of national victory. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it is it is stunning, and people have asked this. I mean, I've had friends and visitors from Europe who wonder, uh, why are there so many huge monuments to, to the side that was defeated in the Civil War? And, you know, if you take them to Monument Avenue in Richmond, they, they're puzzled. Uh, uh, but then, you know, you have to, you have to help them understand that, that one of the ways America reconciled this most divisive, horrible event we've ever experienced is to begin to write uh, the story of black freedom and black equality out of it. Well, that, that's... Um... Does this change at some point? Uh, you, you mentioned Bruce Catton writing in the 50s has his own... Well, the historiography surely has changed. Oh, yes. I mean, enormous changes have occurred in the last 40 years, 50 years even, uh, with the, the study of slavery and, and uh, abolitionism. And uh, I mean, we have an entirely new uh, historiography on the meaning of the Civil War that's evolved in part out of uh, the revolution in the study of African American history. I mean, just I mean, for your older viewers, uh, I'm sorry, listeners. If you just think back, even 30 years ago, how many Americans even knew there were black soldiers in the Civil War, <clears throat> and how many actually learned that there were from a, a movie like Glory? So a lot has changed in the way this history is written, and to some extent, I think even taught, but. It still can surprise us how many millions of Americans grow up every year in this country, and not just in the South, 
believing that somehow the war wasn't really about slavery, that its consequences weren't really about um, a rebirth of freedom rooted in some version of racial equality, um, that that emancipationist conception of the Civil War still has an upward climb to get to the mainstream of American conceptions of what this, this war was really about. Uh, so, yeah, enormous changes have occurred, uh, not just in academic history, but, but even in you know, the, the, the broader ways that we teach about the meaning of the Civil War. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of those changes, of course, have caused reactions, as you know. Uh, well, I, I would suggest if, if uh, anyone who doubts what you just said need only look in the letters column of uh, North and South magazine, Blue and right. Gray, uh, Civil War Times, and anytime someone suggests the war uh, was about slavery, there will be an answer from someone who's darn believe sure they had nothing know. to do with slavery. Uh, believe me, I, I know very well. I've probably heard a bit of that. Had a lot of those letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to take another short break here on Civil War Talk Radio, and we'll be back in just a few moments with our guest today, David W. Blight of Yale University, author of Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory. So come back in a moment. We'll be back on Civil War Talk Radio.